0: Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of uh, a sweetener for you. If you're listening to this on Sunday, the 30th of April, or indeed uh, Monday morning on the 1st of May, if you click the link at the bottom, it'll bring you to our regular Sunday show that we do for our members, our Patreon supporters, uh, and it's with Roman and Owen from The Ditch. And we and we discuss the week that they've had, how investigative journalism has been treated, how independent media has been treated, how Roman and Owen feel about them becoming the story rather than Niall Collins on the controversy surrounding uh, his property dealings. And we also wrap with all of the stories of the week that we felt didn't get enough attention. And all of that right now is free for 24 hours, even if you're not a member. So all you got to do is click the link and have a listen. And while you're listening to it, why not join us? It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee or tea and maybe a scone to you. But to us, it literally pays our bills. This This is how we make our income. This is how we keep the tortoise shack viable. We need your support to do that. So if you're getting something out of it, please give something back. It's not a lot to ask, and as I said, you get access to tons of additional content, all of our podcasts, one consolidated feed. you never miss an episode, including those exclusives, and they're entirely plea-free. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for sharing and liking. Do click the link. Have a look. I'd love you to join us. But in the meantime, enjoy the podcast.
1: Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host, Rory Hearn. Delighted to be joined in the podcast today by economist with SIP2, Michael Taft, and longtime world record holder of greatest podcast member, no member, not member, guest on Reboot Republic. Michael, it's great to have you back. Thanks.
2: Thanks very much, Rory. It's been too long. Well, you know uh come you know come coming up to budget you know, I'm sure we'll have a lot of a lot of opportunities to explore the issues
1: exactly we're turning into a cyclical thing like the seasons this is it this is it <laughs> listen my go on really no, no go work away no, no, you were about to quit back there go for it
2: well, you know I mean uh, you know if you if you if you plan all all of your podcasts around uh the budget cycle you know you'll you'll always kind of get a nice little smooth in to what the budget should do and then afterwards what it failed completely to do.
1: Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. we've been in quite that cycle for quite a while. Um, We're talking today about the massive, massive budget surpluses that we have now and the question of what to do with them. Um, And of course, it links back to a wider question of what do we do with the resources we have in society? Because even... I remember back in 2010, 13 years ago, at the height of the austerity cuts, myself and yourself were arguing for plan B, that there was other things could have been done at that point in time, uh, like not cutting social housing, which, of course, created this uh, crisis in part what we're in. There's always other possibilities. But it's interesting now because it's like even within their own arguments, uh, and within their own framework of um how to do things, there is a huge surplus. And Ireland is relatively unique in this, aren't we?
2: Yes, I mean, I mean, well, we'll get into it in more detail because there's two two measurements of the surplus. There's just the measurement that we all know and love, the one that uh, used to uh, uh, they used to bang 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 over that, bang our heads with. Which was when it was in deficit, and now we're in surplus. And this is in on, terms of just this is in
1: terms of the the government's own, like our our national uh, public. Yeah. Uh, yeah. deficit.
2: in other words, the, the, the amount of tax revenue we have in excess of expenditure uh, uh, during the austerity period. Uh, uh, revenue was well below expenditure. We had this massive deficit, and the whole story was. Uh, you know, well, we can't do anything. We have to cut back. We've got to get our budget back into balance. Uh, uh, otherwise, horrible things will happen. The Troika came to town and all that. Now, this was basically,
1: have- basically just to explain that our, the taxation that was coming in wasn't covering what we were spending on public services, welfare, right. and That's the right. taxes had collapsed essentially because of unemployment, which meant to... Drop in employment related taxes, but also significantly the stamp duty taxes from house sales.
2: That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know. so,
1: well, we, we. And of course, uh, we had the additional cost of having to bail out the banks,
2: which was the well, massive... of Yeah, there, there was all that. It was bad enough that uh, our tax revenue had collapsed. Uh, it wasn't a public expenditure increase substantially, it's just the tax revenue collapsed. Yeah. Uh, with the property crash. And then on top of that, we went around taking on the liabilities of, uh, to pay senior creditors of banks at the same time. So we we got hit with a double whammy. Now we have another situation, which is potentially just as fraught. And that is we have a whole lot of money, uh, whether we measure it as, you know, just a straightforward, you know, uh, revenue versus expenditure. So we something like by 2026. We will have 20 billion euros of tax revenue in excess of our public spending. 20 billion euros. Now, what the That's government- in three years. Saying, yeah. Yeah. 20 billion. Now, what the government has said, and I think there's a lot of logic to this, uh, is that so much of that surplus is down to corporate tax revenue, much of which is potentially unreliable which could just float away uh, depending on the uh, decisions of actually a handful of multinationals. So what they've done is they've extracted what they believe is the, uh, uh, is that element of unreliable corporate tax revenue, but we are still left with a considerable surplus. And you asked, you know, where are we unique by 2026? Uh, every country in the eurozone it's about 20 countries those the eurozone is those countries that that use the euro uh only ireland and, Cy- and cyprus will have a surplus all the other countries will still be in deficit even countries that used to be considered uh you know uh, uh very conservative fiscally like germany or netherlands or sweden they're all going to be in deficit we are going to have even when we take out the unreliable corporate tax revenue, we're going to have a surplus. So we are really, in comparative terms, sitting on a whole load of loot, however you measure. But it it lets, be it loot,
1: and of course, Tony will make the point and has done uh, regularly that, of course, this is related to our tax haven status Um and the ability of corporations to reduce, minimise, avoid tax using the various multiple schemes that we have. And, of course, that extends into the real estate funds in housing as well. But ir- irrespective of that, but put that aside for the moment because the reality is the money is there right now. You called it loot. Let's call it something. It is loot because it's in parts of no, yeah, but yeah. But, it, but it is also real as well because there is a lot of real work being done And real productivity and things being generated in our economy. Nowhere near what, of course, is our level of GDP. And that's related to the whole taxation haven status. But if we take it that this is real money. So in a way, we could call it our, you could call it our pot of gold. And and there's been um, parallels made with, you know, Norway hitting oil. And this is a massive amount of money, like 20 billion. That is real money that we can
2: decide what we want to do with it. That's right. Now, as I say, let's just take that, that, uh, what's called, the, the Department of Finance calls it the windfall tax receipts from corporations. Yeah. And Tony's right. It, it, it really is about, uh, corporations minimizing, uh, their tax liabilities in other countries, which have a higher tax rate. They take the money in those countries, they book it here to take advantage of our low tax rate. But you're also right to say the, this is not just a classical, Tax haven. It's not like in Bermuda uh, or the British Virgin Islands or Cayman Islands or Jersey. Uh, These are big multinationals that have a real presence in the economy. They employ tens of thousands of people at wages which are well in excess, average wages, which are well in excess of our national average wage. Yeah. So, you know, there's real productivity in there. There's real spending in the economy. There's real economic activity. Let's take that money that they call a windfall profit and just set it aside for a moment. Uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, just for the purposes of this discussion. Okay. Now, by the way, what I'm setting aside is about forty billion euros over the next four years. Forty billion euros in what are considered to be windfall tax receipts. Uh, that's your kind of pot, and we'll discuss that in a moment. Even taking that away, we have a very large surplus. A large part of that surplus is down to the fact that what we are doing is that we are depressing public spending as a proportion of our national income. In other words, if we spent the same amount of money as uh, other EU countries, other high income countries like uh, Finland, Denmark, Netherlands and all that, we would have to spend this year an additional 10 billion euros.
1: That then, is, if we were spending equivalent to them yeah. on, let's say, public childcare, public housing, public healthcare, we would be spending an additional ten billion.
2: That's right. Uh, it's because we're not spending that money. Uh, that obviously, well, if you're not spending money and your revenue is rising, that's where you get your surplus. So that is that's apart from that pot of gold, as you called it. Uh, From the
1: corporate. So while the economy is expanding, this is separate from the multinational windfall tax. That we are not in parallel expanding expenditure in public services and bringing them to the level at which they are in more social democratic countries.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, Uh, and not even just social democratic countries, Christian democratic countries. For instance, like Netherlands, German, Germany, yeah. Austria, yeah, historically and all that. The very but interesting it's... point, yeah, because the uh,
1: argument is is a lot about the windfall tax. You just said forty billion there, that's the
2: part of not gold. twenty billion. Where's the uh, forty billion? Oh, okay. Yeah, we're going to get into a problem with numbers here. The amount of money that will uh, uh, that equals the windfall tax receipts out to twenty twenty six is. You know, taken together is 40 billion euros. Uh, uh, Now, that means in 2026, we've got this huge surplus. But we're taking a lot of that. We're taking about 10 billion euros each year and saying, no, that's unreliable. We can't spend it. You don't want to embed that into your permanent spending on public services and social protection. Because if that money went away, you would have a huge hole. So, Okay. okay. They want to take that aside. But even even taking that, that, that windfall profit, that pot of gold, as you called it, even taking that out of the, of the equation, we are still running a significant surplus. And a large part of that is due to the fact that we are suppressing, suppressing public expenditure. Now, we're not cutting it. I mean, public expenditure will rise over the next three, four years. But as a proportion of our national income, it will fall. And it will fall well below the levels uh, that other EU countries spend, so that that's a key consideration. But here's the problem: we now have next year again. You know, excluding this pot of gold, and we'll come back to that. By the way, uh, we'll have about a surplus of four billion euros to start next year in the next year's budget. And the problem is that uh, uh, we have uh, billions more to spend. Uh, And there now will be a debate over how we're going to spend it. The Taoiseach uh, recently said that he wanted to see tax cuts, income tax cuts. And just this morning, Eamon Ryan was on Irish Times podcast saying what he wanted to see was the recruitment of more public sector workers to uh, service a growing and expanding expanding, uh, population base. Yeah. So we're going to have this debate and one of the problems of the debate is we're going to have a lot of proposals to spend money that looks like that they are solving problems when actually they're not and possibly even making it worse. And to give you an example, in the last few days uh, the government has decided to temporarily suspend the development levies that developers pay when they are building estates. And those development levies go to financing Infrastructural and utilities connections and all that, and that's going to cost somewhere in the region of three to four hundred million. And you have these headlines in newspapers saying, "Oh, they're going to suspend the development levies. Houses could cost up to twenty thousand euros less because that's the amount of development levy that's going to be suspended." The problem, as we know, and you've written about this, Roy. The problem is that in a market where you have demand that far exceeds supply. If you cut a tax on the supplier, are they gonna pass it on to the uh purchaser? No. There now there might be at the edges, there might be, you know, certain uh certain uh uh certain kind of particular situations where that occurs if they're trying to shift uh out but you're they're, really- they're not having trouble moving uh the 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 sale of their houses. But by and large uh they are but you're relying on the you're relying on the kindness of developers
1: <laughs> to decide to pass on this public money it's like it's a straight check
2: written to private developers with no strings attached that would appear to be the case now the string attached in the, in the suspension development levy is that they have to start construction within a year okay but no, we'll no strings place.
1: no strings related to affordability requirements no, that no the actual house will be any cheaper when it's sold. No, no.
2: And you know, there's can I just say this right? There's a tendency to <coughs> blame developers for this. Really? Developers are just working to the the market logic as framed by the government. If the government gives these incentives, you know, don't be surprised when developers take up that incentive. Their goal is to maximize their income. Exactly. You know, so, you know, and you not say, oh, developers are evil and all that. Well, maybe they are. But that still doesn't mean that we shouldn't actually test what exactly will be the impact when we have the government coming down with all these different kind of schemes. We've had the help to buy. Was it the help to buy scheme? Yeah. Home scheme, development levies. I, 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 you know, the cost rental scheme, which is really a hoot. Because it has nothing to do with cost. And it's all about subsidizing private developers for a cost rental scheme, which seems a contradiction in terms. because cost rental is supposed to be nonprofit, And uh, all it does is say that it has to be like 25% lower, the rent, than in the local area. Yeah. And Isn't they're it- going to give developers 150,000 euros per unit, cost rental unit, to do this. I mean so you know we had this money but the problem is that the government without a strategy and by the way you know this thing can be applied to opposition parties as well so let's get a little self-critical here there's this idea that we can just spend this money uh without making a real assessment is this going to actually achieve the goal that we want which is affordable houses to purchase and affordable accommodation to rent that's just one example we can apply that to the healthcare service. We can apply it to social protection. We can apply uh, apply that logic to other public capital programs. So we're going to have this this really, I think, is going to be a really desultory kind of debate over all these great things that we want to spend money on, and nobody's taking a step back and saying, "Listen, we've got the surplus. It's great. We can now begin to we can afford the things that we can actually do," but. We have to say, you know, we have to ask ourselves the question, if this is this actually going to achieve our goal? Because we could end up spending all that money and not being a whole lot closer to where we want to be.
1: Absolutely. The and I think that, you know, you're absolutely right in that. And if you look at the example of housing, the obvious thing would be to seed fund the setting up of a public home building agency that would actually develop, construct homes and public land. Purchasing of public land through CPOs, expansion of that. Purchasing derelict vacant buildings, expansion of CPOs, putting money into that. The tenant in situ scheme, expanding that from 1,500 homes. I was looking at it. The moment their uh, plan is 1,500 homes per year bought. But they could buy 5,000 homes a year for 1.2 billion. um, Which would essentially be removing private landlords and providing secure housing to thousands and thousands of people. And you would actually, you would also reduce the demand. So there are areas that you could spend.
2: Yes, I mean, it, the, the, the issue here is, uh, with housing, for instance, the issue here is quite clear. Do we want to uh, develop and expand a public housing market to complement the private housing market. And if you do that, that means that you will deliver affordable homes to purchase, affordable accommodation to rent, to a number of schemes, but you will do it through a public housing market where the state actually finances direct delivery. Uh, Again, I was just just reading through some stuff uh, uh, in anticipation that these kind of issues would come up. But, you know, uh, you a know, government report back in the 20s from the IGES uh, unit of Department of Public Expenditure, some very good stuff that's published there, uh, and which the government doesn't seem to read. And they were identifying uh, areas in the country where it is far more cost effective to deliver directly, build, and rent housing to tenants rather than going through uh, a convoluted process of subsidizing it to HAP or other schemes. So we do have the research there. We do have actually the building blocks there to say, listen, we're going to develop a really strong, vibrant public housing market, which by the way, is not for poor people. There's this idea that social social, ho- well, it is because social housing is seen as something for poor people. It's a residual. We're now going to build a public housing market, which is accessible by all, regardless of employment status or income, who are in housing need. That, you know, that is key. Once you have that framework, then you can say, yeah, our work, what are we doing with this scheme or that scheme or that scheme? Is that achieving what we want? Right now, it's just this, gig- there's this just gigantic pot bowl of pot purry that, you know, the government throws in another scheme and another scheme and another scheme. And if they keep doing that We'll actually sp- end up spending the friggin' surplus and we won't be anywhere near our goal. That's that's the 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 the, the fear that I would have. That- yeah, no, I, I think
1: you're 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 absolutely right, and that was very clear um in the the immediate thing they did with you know this sense that they have money to spend was to give developers the subsidy and to then this cost rental for developers is very dangerous, I think, in terms of what it, it's opening up um, and what it could mean for actually delivering, not actually delivering affordable housing, but the cost of it and whether it'll even deliver or not. But on the specific, the public construction company, because we've just talked about this in the public home building agency, um, you know, the the, the government argues, oh, the land development agency is doing it. and But I, I do think, and we, you know, that there is, this is clearly now the time we have the money we could really do this we could do something that would be historic and set up a public home development building company that would you know go around you know operate on a regional basis um you know support and work with local authorities housing associations deliver their homes with them for them and actually hire you know all the aspects of construction that are needed provide permanent public jobs um you know, overcome the the whole issue of bogus self-employment, give people proper, you know, contracts and actually have that capacity to deliver a home from start to finish within the public system.
2: That's right. I mean, the argument for a public uh, enterprise uh, um, uh, uh, construction company uh, would be that uh, it could deliver uh, housing uh, using best practice in labor, as you were talking about, for instance, bogus self-employment, uh, uh, precarious contracts. It could provide uh, uh, best practice in terms of uh, environmental uh, protection. You know, I mean, you know, very high-rated uh, uh, BER high-rated uh, homes uh, that will help uh, uh, not only improve people's living standards but you know, uh, uh, address the issues of climate justice. Now, a public enterprise housing company would have to compete with other companies. But here's an op- there, there's two things about that. Here's an opportunity, one, for the government to come in and say, okay, we're going to procure, you know, the building uh, housing from, you know, whoever wants to bid. But they have to have the similar level of best practice in terms of their operations. That would put a public enterprise company in a very competitive position. And secondly, because a public enterprise construction company doesn't have to generate a profit for its owners, it can be investment-driven. And here is a key thing uh, going forward. you know, We still build houses the same way we did 50 years ago. There's very little productivity in housing construction, even though they're now experimenting with different ways of building housing, some of it, you know, off-site construction and then, you know, inside and they bring it to it, they bring it to uh, uh, the site, different kinds of materials that they're experimenting with. A housing, a public enterprise housing construction company could lead the way in terms of more modern methods of building housing, investing in those uh, type of uh, inputs which will maximize environmental concerns and health and safety, and things like that, while at the same time uh, uh, practicing best practice in terms of labor, in terms yeah. of the workers. So yeah. there, there is a role for that. And by the way, you, you talk about we have the money to do this. Actually, setting up a uh, public enterprise construction company wouldn't, quote unquote, cost the state anything in terms of on the books, because it would compete with other companies. But it could, could compete from a very strengthened position. Uh, uh, you know, but again, we have to have government policy uh, that links up. So we need government policy that says, okay, we're going to procure the building of housing or the maintenance of housing or whatever. But now we want our companies to, to act to the best practice possible. And if they can't do it, we have a public enterprise construction company that can. So in other words, we are not reliant on laggards in the market. And that's a key thing. It it absolutely
1: is. And I think that it's, you know, when we look at health and we look at education, um, you know, those areas that we don't rely on the market to supply teachers, doctors, you know, we do it as a public because we understand if you don't do that, you're not going to have your public service. And we have completely failed in actually understanding that it's similar in housing, that housing the way you deliver a housing service is you build homes and then you maintain them and you constantly reinvest. But that's all a public service that it should be a public service. And if you look at the retrofitting targets now needed in terms of homes, um, you know, even even in terms of, for example, the tenant in situ scheme, the purchase of, of some of these homes that aren't up to standard, like how are they then going to be retrofitted? We need a huge expansion in capacity in You know, being able to retrofit, to be able to refurbish, to maintain homes. And it's as important as our health service and our education system. So why don't we have a public retrofitting, you know, construction company that guarantees you can deliver
2: housing as a service, as a public good? Well, there's two points you raised there. First off, when I talked about kind of developing a public housing market, I should have actually used the term that you used, Rory. And that is we have to start seeing housing as a public service. And this is not just in Ireland. As you well know, I mean, we, we are seeing a housing crisis uh, come, you know, developing in a number of other countries or in a number of other uh, regions and countries. Uh, even countries that used to have a very strong public housing presence, whether it was through uh, decades-old cost rental schemes and all yeah. uh, things like that. Such as in Germany, we are now seeing because the decisions they took to actually down to 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 degrade the public element, we are now seeing housing crisis in Berlin and other places.
1: And they handed it over to the They handed public housing over to investor funds there, um. And but of course, the most acute housing crises are in the same countries that followed our model. model. Uh, the neoliberal Canada, the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, the market ones, the ones where the market completely dominates, are the worst crisis. But even those other countries are also being pushed hard um, in terms of they are experiencing nothing like our scale of crisis, but they are experiencing because they are similarly uh, under pressures from markets and investors and that. But
2: that's right. It's been the internationalization of investment in uh, uh, housing and in land, which has uh, created this this issue. And as you say, it's not as bad as in other countries. It's not as bad as here, In other countries but relative to their experience it's it's becoming a crisis so the key thing is to see uh, housing as a public service that it is actually a good to be consumed as a home not as a good to speculate on the market with but we haven't got there to that to that stage certainly the government hasn't got there they are still trying to uh, manipulate the private housing market to achieve public ends but they're coming up against this this massive contradiction, uh, uh, you know that plays out in so in so many ways, and the crisis is, is the result of that. But there's a second problem, and you know I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, Rory. We do have a labor capacity issue. Certainly for the next three, four, five years, the question is, you know, even if we had the money to do all these great things, specifically to build housing and to retrofit, what, the government's target of 500000 by the end of 2030? Good luck with that. Um, Do we have the people and the skills? Don't forget, when we allowed the housing uh, market to just crater after the last crash, and this was an area where the government could have sustained it, Uh, you know, like, for instance, if during 2010, 2011, they were investing in social housing and stuff like that, they allowed it to crater. Much of our skills left. They had people either went into other jobs, they went back home, they went abroad, uh, uh, whatever. So we allowed that collapse to occur. We're, we're still dealing with the legacy of the austerity impact in the construction sector. So that means it's going to take a while before we can reach the level of labor and skills uh, to match the policy ambitions uh, that we have, which is to provide housing for people to and to provide uh, um, uh, retrofitting uh, and uh, ecologically sustainable yeah housing. but that but that is a real problem, and
1: I, but think- I, I would you know because I've you know been looking at that, um there is a couple of things. One is that the construction workers in the economy are not just building housing, they're building lots of other things too um in particular when we yes. look at offices yeah. hotels have been major areas of construction uh, apart hotels in dublin um and large investor fund developments and offices and hotels are going through a particular crisis at the moment in terms of well offices are uh, because of the whole issue of remote working and therefore there's a fall in construction so there's capacity of workers opening up in that and also the hotels i was researching the hotel development there's going to be a reduction in hotel development because they've you know their projects are completing and the investor funds themselves are reducing their development as we're seeing this whole issue that's why the government is panicking because their plan was reliant on investor funds and now because of rising interest rates they're not forward purchasing forward uh, financing so there's going to be capacity opening up around construction workers. And I have heard some construction workers uh, and spoken to some who are saying, well, I've heard people have been let go because there's no projects down the line in certain um, areas. And so there is capacity there. And what's vital is that we ensure that that capacity is put into construction of homes. And the if you create it, this is I think the centrality of moving very quickly To creating a public construction company because you will hold that capacity then in the country and you will attract it into housing if you give really good quality jobs quality permanent employment and people will return as well and if you create tackle the vacancy and dereliction alongside that you create that capacity but it's almost like this circular argument oh we don't have the capacity therefore we can't set up a public construction company well you will never have the capacity really If you don't develop a public construction company that guarantees, you know, permanent provision, because people aren't going into construction because like, well, it's boom, bust. Why would I go into it? The other thing is you can develop capacity quickly through the factory modular offsite developments. Yes. And I have also been told that developers do not want that because they don't make the same amount of money from it. And so there's been a reluctance to develop the modular factory development of housing. Whereas, as you said, a public construction company would be absolutely incentivized, not about profit of the end good, but about what's going to deliver quality housing quickly. And so they would invest in factories and you could really relatively quickly ramp up delivery.
2: That's right. I mean, there's two two good points you made in terms of um, finding ways to increase our capacity in the short term while we pursue more medium term uh, 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 as schemes to apprenticeship programs, uh, reskilling programs, uh, and immigration, which can play a really helpful role uh, uh, in, in terms of you know medium to long term development. But that means the state has to get into uh, the the area Say, well, what we're going to do is we're going to positively dampen down the activity, construction activity of things that we don't believe are necessary to, you know, the market. And you think of commercial office building, yeah. you think of hotel building, but that means that they have to have those instruments to use and willing to use. And that, of course, calls for a much bigger, and this is not about spending, this is just about the state intervening through regulatory agencies, you know, through planning uh, and possibly even through taxation to say we are we are actually going to squeeze Certain activities which we feel are no longer reached, you know, that will no longer contribute to the productivity of the economy. And we're going to redirect those resources into those areas which are productive. Uh, So, uh, but that we're, again, we are a long ways away from having that discussion.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: uh, Never mind, never mind having that policy implementation. But if I just, yeah. Yeah, go go on, yeah. I was just going to say, just moving away from that and talking about this pot of gold that we have, yeah. because all those other things actually could be facilitated within the budget, even if we didn't have those windfall tax receipts, because there will still be surpluses. And by the way, you know, you increase taxation. Uh, we might come to that later, especially the Commission on Taxation proposals, which I think were quite progressive. Uh, uh, but let's just look at that pot of gold. It's going to be between now and 2026, 40 billion euros in excess windfall, unreliable tax receipts. 40 billion euros. You've got two schools emerging. One is that we should save it for the future uh, to pay down pension costs, pension yeah. pension expenditure in 2040, 2050. Uh, I don't think that's a very smart way of using that money. If you if you want to, if you want to. Uh, pay for uh, pension expenditure like any other day-to-day expenditure. You raise your tax revenue to achieve that goal. Uh, you don't save it away and then spend it, and then once it's all spent, you still have this problem of yeah. you know financing mm-hmm. pension expenditure because it's all it would only be a one stop expenditure out of the pension fund. There's another stool pop that says that um, we should pay down our national debt because, our, you know, our public debt, because our public debt is the highest in the universe. And, uh, you know, we're all stuck with forty fifty thousand 50,000 euros debt per yep. uh, man, woman, child in, in society. It's a load of rubbish. Our debt levels now are below the Eurozone average. And our debt levels are falling faster than any other Eurozone country. That's not an issue. So what do we do with that 40 billion? We have to be very careful that we don't spend it in a way uh, that uh, uh, it means that we could lose out if something happened to that to those windfall uh, uh, those windfall profits because two or three uh, multinationals decide that they are now going to divert all that sales revenue that now comes here they're going to divert it into some other tax haven conduit so what you do is you say listen what we should do is spend it on the most vital uh, uh, projects which are uh, crucial to future economic uh, uh, and social development and which we might struggle paying out of our current revenues. And I can think of no better way than spending not all of it, but a sizable portion on the issue of climate change. Mm. And in particular, two areas. One, uh, uh, doing the transition to renewable technology for some reason, and you get a lot of different, uh, uh, a lot of different analysis on this. We have uh, uh, the best wind resources off the west coast of Ireland than almost anywhere else in Europe. In fact, I think the you know the highest level of resources anywhere in Europe. We still seem to find it difficult to mobilize the capital and the skills uh, and the urgency to actually build. Uh, 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 wind Offshore wind farms Now is that again a Just like in housing Is that again The government saying Well we're going to try to do Everything we can To incentivize private players Yeah We're going to give yeah. them tax breaks. We're going to give them Guaranteed tariffs We're going to do all that uh, 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 Or is it a case That the state should step in And say well listen We're going to mobilize The capital to do that Now that private capital Can also come in But the state takes the lead In doing that that would be one vital thing because to move our electricity you know our electricity consumption fully to wind resources would be not only necessary by you know by uh, 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 in terms of our going to zero emissions but also would be a huge economic benefit because right now most of our electricity consumption has been poured in from fossil fuels done uh, above so that is one area and secondly you know, and again, this comes back to how we can divert labor into this, but retrofitting is so important. Yeah. It's so important because you know that most most heating is not is not uh, 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 fueled by electricity, it's fueled by gas. So if we want to reduce our natural gas consumption substantially, uh, in fact, try to bring it as close to zero as possible, what you would do is say, listen, we're going to have a retrofit program. Uh, uh, that actually achieves that goal of hitting 500,000 houses with a proper retrofit. But again, what do we have? We have these grants that are given. But to be honest, I mean, one 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 economist told me that they're just uh, middle-class grants because they don't cover the entire retrofit. A lot of it has to be spent up front before you get the money back. And a lot of people, especially those who need it the most, you know, older people living in older buildings, uh, they can't possibly access the money to, to achieve that. So it's not just having the money. It's sometimes not even just having the labor to do it. What we need are well programs. And also, programs. Renters,
1: renters can't access them. And there's no right. system that's, for yeah. which renters will get their homes retrofitted. And how landlords won't just benefit and use it for what they call renovictions.
2: I hadn't heard that term before, but uh, you're you're absolutely right. So therefore, we need programs that will treat this as a public service activity, a public good activity, rather than trying to incentivize the private sector. Now, this doesn't mean getting rid of the private sector in that activity, because if you're going to be retrofitting 500,000 homes by the end of the decade, you're going to need public capital, you're going to need private capital. And you're going to, you know, there's going to be a lot of businesses that are employed to do that. But what you need to do is have the framework by which they achieve that in the most economically and ecologically efficient way. Again, we don't have that. We don't have the grant program. And as you point out with a critical section of um, society for tenants, we don't have the programs that protect their tenancy to achieve that. So, you know. That's why I come back saying that the concern is that we'll have all this money, a lot of money will be spent on uh, 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 um, uh, ill-thought-out uh, programs which are uh, uh, don't treat things like housing or retrofitting or indeed health or education as proper public goods and services, and you develop the programs from that. will spend a lot of money trying to incentivize private actors in the market, and what will happen is that we'll have spent all that money and not gotten very far towards our goals. so that's the fear so having too much money can pad the you know can have the same problems as having not enough money but I, if you're not if you you know
1: yeah, absolutely if you're not addressing the um the reasons and the structural reasons as to why you're just constantly producing and not addressing the the problems that are there. And if you do it in a way that simply, as you say, is about trying to incentivize the market, the market will just continue to extract more and more profit and not meet the basic needs that are there. Listen, Michael, it was great to have you um have you back again. I have to say I missed our chats and um, really did and really enjoyed that, found that engaging. I know listeners will uh, really have found that as well really
0: interesting. Tony, you're back with us too. Yeah, no, two quick very things, uh, two quick things, folks. Just, um. Just again, I'm going to plug the uh, Lost in Implementation podcast because it's only a limited series. It's six part, and I think it's really worth listening to the unpaid, unimplemented, unfinished business of the Good Friday Agreement by not by the people who took a bow for the 25 year anniversary, and it will probably be back for the 30 year anniversary, but by the people on the ground. And yesterday we recorded one about uh, women in politics, and uh, it was it was really really good. So that'll be with you very soon. And then the second thing is, and it's uh, for you, Rory. You've just completed your second. Marathon as as out of four for for DePaul. I know I'll be doing a double marathon this year, but but listen, where can people support you, Rory? Because you do four now for DePaul and it's a very worthy cause. And you you were a bit slow this time, but I'm gonna forgive you. It.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, devil. <laughs> yeah. I was. Uh, it was the Conor kind of marathon. I did 26 miles up through the the mountains. Well, it was on the road, but hills, lots and lots of hills. It was tough going and bizarrely bizarrely hot. Um. And but it was an amazing, amazing place up there. So it's um it is I'm trying to remember
0: you caught me in the hop You're now. on Just Given, aren't you?
1: It is, yeah, yeah. Just given forward slash Rory Earn for marathons. If you can uh, donate um on that for raising funds. I think I'm close to a thousand raised already. So listen, thank you so much to those who have donated, and if you haven't, please go over there. Um doing then Cork Marathon is the fourth of June, so I am so so you're
0: actually rebel you're rebel actually... Territory. You're going yeah. abroad. You're going abroad for one. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know whether they'll accept my passport or not. I, I would not let you in. No, no, that's it. No fair play. And uh, you know, as I said, yeah, chip in, folks, and 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 bloody well support this podcast as well if you can. Please, Exactly. absolutely, absolutely. Listen, thank you all so much for listening.
1: Please, as we say, share it around if you can, um, on social media. It really does make a difference. More people get to hear it, um, and also, you know, we appreciate all the comments and uh people contact me. it was very funny tony actually the story related to the conor marathon i was on mile 14 i was it's up out of linan there's a massive hill i was going i'm struggling now and um, i just done the first half in one hour 33 which was way too fast and i was a mile 14 and this fella sidles up beside me kieran i think was his name and he goes rory love your podcast <laughs> well if anything was demotivating it was that <laughs> and he goes oh Jesus you know you're really standing up for my generation I love it it's great you know so important what you're doing keep it up and I was like that's funny here there was only five or 600 people did the marathon and this fella sidled up to me just when I needed a bit of a boost and uh, so thanks Kieran. appreciate that if you're listening alright so over and out talk to you all soon thanks Michael thanks